So tonight brings us to Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and 5. So as we're rolling forward in the book of Judges, it's that sort of dark ages for the nation of Israel. Joshua has stepped into eternity, and it's about a 400-year period where there's a lack of strong leadership as a whole, and there's a cycle that the 12 tribes of Israel have in the promised land, their land, is that they have this cycle of rebelling against the Lord, worshiping idols and false gods, God giving them over to someone to rule over them, a political entity, and then the people crying out, God giving them a deliverer, a judge, and then them having deliverance, having peace, and then that judge dies, and then once again they repeat the cycle. It's cyclical of how this pattern happens, where they just repeatedly backslide over and over, but there are wonderful men and women who have led, who lead in the book of Judges to inspire God's people. And tonight we'll see Deborah. So far we've seen Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar are the first three judges. And tonight we go forward from that. And remember, there's a time when people didn't know about the Lord, that the word of God wasn't taught, although the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And that we're told as a summary of the book that people just did what was ever right in their own eyes. That was what it was like for God's people in the promised land with their covenant. So we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1, where we read this. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil on the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth, Haggayim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinadam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand? And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. This is the beginning and the introduction of the story, the ministry, the life of Deborah, along with Barak, because their lives are yoked together in their political leadership and how God used them together. The, the prophetess, who's the judge, and Barak, who became the general. So this is one of these neat passages where we see an amazing woman in the Bible, and we're told about Deborah there in verse 4. She's a prophetess. So that's very special, because there's only about four or five women in the Bible that are actually called literally a prophetess. So she gets the title, she's a prophetess. Now Miriam, Moses' sister, was the last known prophetess. And that's a couple of generations past, of course. So here's this woman, she speaks the oracles of the Lord. She's got tongues of fire, if you will, over her head. And when she speaks, 
It's the authority of God. She speaks for God. She is a prophetess. She speaks the oracles of God. And remember, they're coming out of a dark time because it said that for 20 years they were under harshly oppressed under Jabin. 20 years, it's a long time. 20 years is two full decades of being not just oppressed, not just oppressed, but harshly oppressed. And in the midst of this, God puts his spirit upon this woman and raises her up. Now, people often say with Deborah, like when a man won't do the job, a woman will. But I think that kind of degrades Deborah and women as a whole, because women can do the job whether a man does or doesn't do the job. And I think we need to understand that clearly, that there's neither male nor female in Christ. There is order. We understand that. Most of us are pretty mature in the faith, and we know that God has an order and how he has marriage and these things, and even in the body of Christ. But to imply that women are something less than equal to men in the calling before God and standing before God is a great disservice to women. And, of course, most world religions do demean women and treat them less than And that's one of the beauties of biblical Christianity is it elevates women to full equality with men in society and in their function. And where the gospel has gone forth, women have been liberated and and been raised raised up with great opportunity in this country and most of the Western world is a great example of that. We have a, a female vice president right now. We almost had a female president five years ago. The opportunities are there. It is an amazing country, right? Like, But again, we know that those type of opportunities in this country are the results of the gospel being deeply influential and the word of God in our constitution, in our form of government, and the progression of our society, each generation going forward with a a greater movement toward biblical truths and opportunities for all people of all walks of life in in our nation. And it's the gospel that's the foundation of that. The gospel elevates humanity and human rights, including women's rights. Not above what they are, but what they are. That's the beauty of how God works. That's, that's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we, if you're a woman, you can thank God you're born in America and not in most Middle Eastern countries, right? What rights do you have in Middle Eastern countries under Islamic Sharia law? What rights do the women have in, in Afghanistan today when they woke up, right? Do you understand? Like, what, what rights? What's the difference? Oppressive man-based religion versus the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. And it is unfortunate that people see the gospel and the church as being oppressive or repressive of women's rights when nothing could be farther from the truth. But it shouldn't surprise us because we know the devil is the father of lies and he takes that which is good, the gospel for women, and makes it evil and he takes that which is evil and makes it good, which is putting women in places that are not good for their walk with the Lord and not good for their purposes from the created order that God has for them. So we need to address that right away, that this is a woman. And it's not a woman leader because a man wouldn't lead. It's a woman leader because God set a spirit on a woman and she's leading. So it's not that a woman's going to lead because a man won't lead. A woman's leading because God put his spirit on this woman to lead. It doesn't have an asterisk, and that's important to understand. We also see, you know, she's a woman, she's a prophetess, she is a wife, she's married, and she is identified with her husband, but she has this great calling that is not outside of her marriage, but separate. We don't read about him being a prophet, we read about her being a prophetess, and that, that's, that's fine. 
because God gives each one a gift in different measures and different strengths. And there's one thing that she can be that her husband could never be, a mother for Israel. Because in the Song of Deborah, in the next chapter, she says of herself. So when this woman, who's a prophetess and a judge, had reflected on her self-identity, if you will, and would look in a mirror at herself, what she saw well, it would be very different than what Jezebel saw when she looked in the mirror a couple of generations later. Or Athalia, the, the rebel queen. Because they just saw power, brute power and force. What she saw was a mother herself. She saw a mother who was the mother of Israel. And that declaration from her song tells us insight on how she saw her role right here. So you might say from her own confession of her song that she saw the men of Israel as a bunch of little boys that needed a mommy, including Barak. They, they needed a mother's exhortation. I'm not saying this. She says this by the Holy Spirit. So in her identity, her self-identity, like it's a TV show, who are you, Deborah? She'd say, I'm a prophetess, I'm a judge, I'm the wife of Lepidoth, and I'm the mother of Israel. That's what the scripture tells us about her. And there's a reason even the most hardened criminals have tattooed on their arm, mom. There's no one can replace mom. Moms are amazing. I've been hearing all the, the mother-son songs, because there's a mother-son dance, right? So I've been hearing them. And I've been kind of like, I'm like the, the, the coach with Jennifer, like, it's a beautiful song, but that's a hard song to dance to. That's, that's a, it's, got a, it's got a changing cadence. You want, just, you want this with Timmy. That's what you want, you know? So anyways, but hearing these songs, there's a lot of Christian songs and particularly a lot of country songs, right? About moms and their boys. God has designed human relationships to go certain ways, right? So we have husband to wife, wife to husband. Then we have parents to children. That's all the Ten Commandments. And children obey your parents that may be well with you. So we have the, the vertical going down, parents to children. We have the vertical going up, children to parents. We have siblings, and then eventually you have a righteous man has inheritance to his children's children, so that's two generations up. And you, you go this way, and then you have cousins, and we already saw in the law, like, this person's your relative, or Uncle Mordecai raises Esther because the parents died off, right? Like, you have these different relationships. But the mother-son relationship is a very unique and powerful one. And she identified herself in her song of victory after the defeat of Sisera, as the mother of Israel. That gives us insight to how she saw her role as a judge and a prophetess to the nation. She was the matriarch. She was the matriarch. You know, when I coached the U.S. surf team, I, I, I've told people this. In all my coaching, the U.S. surf team the first time, the British team the one time, and the Chilean team for three years, and the U.S. team the second time with all these junior teams, I'll tell you what they always needed. They needed a pastor. They, and you, you people that were involved with me, the Chilean team, you know they needed a pastor. They needed a pastor. And once the U.S. surf team didn't need a pastor, I wasn't the right person. 
They needed a better coach. Who's Brett Simpson? That's a better fit. And so Israel didn't need, what they needed here was a mother. That's how she saw it. Someone who spoke the oracle of God, someone who judged righteously for the people of God, someone who didn't fear evil or Sisera or Jabin, that's for sure, someone who could exhort and challenge the children of Israel, the children of God. That's who she was. And we appreciate that because that's a woman being a woman in that capacity. Being a woman is not limited to being a wife or a mother, but in that capacity, these were elements of who she was that made her who she was in that role and how God used her in that role and how she saw herself in that role. So Deborah is amazing. And we pause and say, Lord, thank you for incredible women in the history of the Bible, the people of faith, people of covenant. And she was. Now, we also see here her exhortation to, to Barak, where she says there in verse 4, she sat under the palm tree, and then eventually by verse 6, she sent and called for Barak, the son of Adadomim, from Kadesh and Naphtali. So Naphtali, of course, is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're in the north by Megiddo, where the valley of, valley of Megiddo, which is where the battle of Armageddon is going to happen in the future. That's an interesting story about this battle because it happened where the end game battle is going to happen in the end of the age when Jesus returns to earth. But she called for him, and the quotation begins in verse 6. So it's like a question. So I'll read it one more time. She says this question. We don't know about her relationship, Bark, or anything. It's just she sends to him and says this question. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitudes at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand? Question mark. <laughs> so you're Barak, mind your own business, and someone shows up, hey man, I got a message from Deborah the prophetess. He already knows what it is. The question implies, has not God, when she says, has not God said this? So either like as soon as he hears it, he's going to know like, wow, that's me. I'm supposed to do this. This is my calling. Or maybe God already spoke it to him, but he was trepid or intimidated to act upon it. Sometimes we're like that. Where you feel like God's showing you something, but you're just, you're just not sure. You're like Gideon where you have to do the fleece, the fleece, the fleece, and this thing. Like God understands that. But she says, hey, Bark, has not God said do this, do this, do this, do this, and he'll do that. Yes or no? Has he said it or not said it? So as she's presenting his calling to him, and as she's the matriarch of Israel, the prophetess, the leader, she's basically saying, hey, let's go. Let's get with it. God has called you. God has told you to raise up the army from the northern tribes. God has told you that he's going to bring Sisera against you with 900 chariots and that he's going to defeat him right before your eyes. Has he not told you that? And he, he doesn't really say yes or no. What does he say? Um, well, if you go, I'll go. So maybe God told him that, but he's like, I'm going to feel a lot better, but you're telling me it too. People are like that, right? We're funny because we look at certain people and we say, we know the Lord is with that person. And so we really trust that person. And the more that, you know, like you, you see the wisdom, spirit-filled woman, spirit-filled man, and you see a track record of mostly good decisions and good fruit, then you, you trust that. Again, I, you know, was crying on Saturday night, but 
that's what people so respected with Pastor Chuck Smith is God was with him. And his track record of great, of really good decisions as a chief shepherd over a movement was fantastic. Like whatever flaws people look for, it's, you know, it's never hard to find flaws with people if you're looking for flaws. But when you're looking for greatness and you're looking for spiritual godly leadership, someone like Pastor Chuck just had all this equity that people trusted. Again, on 9-11, thousands of people came to the church that day, not because they trusted the building, they trusted the pastor who led the flock in that building. And they trusted what he was going to say and how we're going to go forward from this. And so that's your context, that Barak would look at Deborah and say, hey, you're a prophetess. I, you know, you've got good fruit. You make good judgments under your little palm tree there in Gilead. If you're saying I'm called to do this, I believe this. But I'm going to feel a whole lot better if when I go running into 900 chariots, I can look at you before I do so. Kind of like when you're about to go on stage for something and you know, you're like, oh, and you're like, you got this. Let's go. Go, go, go. And you walk out there, right? It's like that. She wasn't going to fight the battle. He was going to fight the battle. But she was the confirmation of the Lord in his life that he was called to fight this battle. So what we really see in this story, this element, is that all these gifts that Deborah had, certainly the gift of exhortation is in there because she's exhorting Barak to do this. This is an exhortation. It's not so much a commandment. It doesn't sound like a commandment. It's an exhortation. Hey, the Lord's with us. The focus of has he not commanded you to do this isn't about 900 chariots or that God's even allowed the enemy to rise up. The focus is on that you're called to do this and God's going to deliver you. That's the promise of the exhortation. But like so many of us, we want to look to someone that we see as more spiritual than us, who's encouraging us for strength and comfort and hope and encouragement when we're about to take a huge step of faith that is in many cases, life risking. In this case, it certainly was. So it's a really neat story about her calling and her gift of exhortation and just even her presence, her presence and her presence, her very presence elevated the faith of other people. And her presence in this story elevates Barak's faith. He's like, I can do this if you're there. Much like, again, we look up to people we just respect and that's what's so difficult sometimes when people we love and, and respect who have encouraged us and exhorted us are gone because they're, they're not there. When I went through a lot of difficult things handling my dad's estate the first couple of years he was in assisted living, some very arduous and difficult things to do. And they were very overwhelming for me. And my mom would be like, Joe, you got this. You can do this. You're going to call those people. You're going to do this. And then after that, you'll know what to do next. You, you just got to get up Pray to the Lord and call these people and take the next step. And somehow, like when my mom would say, you got this, you can do this. It, of course, when your wife tells you that, you feel the same way. But when my mom would say, just like, my whole life, that was like. When those people are gone, it's harder, isn't it? Right? We understand that. Like, you, when you lose that voice of exhortation in your life, that presence of faith that encouraged you and inspired you in spiritual things, that is a hard thing because you can't replace that void. We often say at memorials, they'll live in our hearts. They're memories in our hearts. They'll bring us back good memories. We'll think about the good things they said and the things they encourage us on. But I can't go to 642 Cortez and get exhorted by my mom what to do, what's right to do. 
and we can't go back to 300 South Fairview Avenue and see what Pastor Chuck thinks about the last 18 months in America. We just got to do what we're called to do. But we understand that. So what we've been saying all along with the book of Judges is we want to be like the judges. We want to be that person that people look at you and say, that woman reminds me of Deborah. She's a prophetess. Her husband's identified with her. She's identified with her husband. She's the mother of Israel. And she's a judge. She's walking wisdom. I'm going to go by that palm tree and hear what she has to say. We want to be that woman and we want to be Ehud where we're willing to risk our life to deliver from Eglon. So again, the constant theme as we're going through judges this autumn is that these judges were an exception to the vast majority of the people of their culture, and they did great things and inspired other people. So Deborah here is just an incredible inspiration to me personally, and I think to all of us. So we pick it up now in verse 11. The story expands. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Ben-Anoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people with him, from Harosheth to Hagayim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone before you? This <laughs> is another one of those questions, like your mom. Get up, go to work, get the job, do it. You know, the matriarch of Israel. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army at the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth, Haggim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, he says, Is there a man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there laid Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So truly, Deborah had brought about deliverance from Jabin and Sisera, his general. So it's really like Jabin against Deborah and Sisera against Barak, Barak, right? Like that's really what you got here. It's the woman judge versus the Canaanite king, and it's Sisera, the general, versus Barak the Israeli general. And Sisera had all the weapons, but we already read that God raised them up and allowed them to be there to chasten God's people for not walking with him and turning their back on him and rebelling against him. But God is merciful in this cycle of their sin, failures, and unbelief and raising up a judge. So it's a great victory. The whole chapter belongs to the glory of women having faith and doing great things. And we see that. But now we get the song of Deborah in chapter five. And the song of Deborah 
is special. Even as special as Deborah is. And one of the things that you want to think about for a moment before we even read it is the Bible is written by men. It's men. Now, there's all kinds of quotes from women. There's stories about women like Esther, if I live, I live, if I die, I die. There's incredible things involving women where women are quoted and they're great women and they do great things. But it's written by men. And what's interesting to me about the Song of Deborah is you have 150 psalms, mostly from David and the sons of Kor and a few others. But this is a song. Now, Miriam had a song, right? Miriam had the song after the defeat of Pharaoh's army. So this is before any... any now, no, excuse me. Moses has a psalm in the book of Psalms. So Moses would have written his psalm, Psalm 91, 90 or 91, before this. But the book of Psalms, we wouldn't know if it was actually assembled at this point in time or how it was fully received to us. And again, most of it was written by David. So... This song of Deborah is very unique because this is a whole chapter, essentially, of a woman, this matriarch of Israel, this prophetess, this wife, this judge, this leader, singing a song to the Lord. It's kind of like Mary's song, you know, the the song of Mary there in in Luke's gospel, very similar. So it's just, it's unique. It's unique. And it, it bears really keeping that in mind that this is a woman who experienced great victory from a political position, who saw herself as a mother of Israel, singing about God's victory and about the men of Israel at that time. And that's her context. So she says this, chapter 5, verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinadom, sang on that day. So he is accredited being a part of this with the song and singing it. It's a duet. (laughs) Verse 2. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods, then their war in the gates. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 of Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offer themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. We'll start with this segment of the song first. Well, she sang a song on that day. She's a songwriter. So add that to her list of skills and gifts. Verse 2 says it all right away. When leaders lead in Israel. That was the challenge of her day. There was a lack of leadership. They had been oppressed for 20 years. There was a lack of leadership. Leadership in general and godly leadership specifically. And she became that godly leader. When leaders lead in Israel. There's always a need for godly leaders to lead the body of Christ and influence society for good things and the good things of God. God's always recruiting godly leaders. You can't make yourself a leader per se. God, you make yourself available. And as you're led of the Lord, you can lead for the Lord. And I say this quite often, but I seek to be led by the Lord. I don't want to lead people where I'm going. I want to lead people where he's leading us. So if I'm being led by the Lord toward the kingdom that we're called of God in Christ Jesus, 
then I'm inviting people to follow me here in this congregation, podcast, YouTube channel, K-Wave. I'm inviting a broader audience. Like, we're being led of the Lord, and we're going to the celestial city, to quote you know, John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, and we're being led. We don't need men and women who think they got all figured out and have a plan and agenda and want to put God on it. It's kind of what you can do with topicals. You just get a topic that you just want to talk about, and then you find a verse to slap on it, but really it's about what you want to say rather than letting the Bible speak. That's the difference between topical, by and large, and verse by verse. Verse by verse, God is speaking, and you got to just teach it in its context, and the application will speak for itself. But if I want to do a study on prayer, I can just say, well, I want to talk about praying for your husbands and your wives. I want to pray about, I want to talk about praying for leaders or this and that. I, I've got like, I pick my topic and then I try and match the verse to it. That's backwards. That's how that works. Now, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying it's, a, it's reverse order. And speaking with a friend that goes to another church recently, he said to me, it must be a lot easier to teach verse by verse than doing topicals every Sunday. I go, like, like there's no tomorrow. I just, I, just, I just open up the Bible and teach the next two chapters. You have a big ocean to swim in trying to find your study. I don't know how Spurgeon did it. You know, you know all Spurgeon's messages, Charles Spurgeon, all those topical studies. I don't know how he did it. But verse by verse works. And so we need to be led of the Lord, led by his word, so others can follow. And that's the idea that Peter had in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he told the shepherds, you who shepherd, remember, you're going to give an account to the chief shepherd. So don't lord over people, but serve people. Don't do it begrudgingly, but do it because you love people. That's how we're to lead. We're to be led of the Lord, that we can lead for the Lord. So when leaders lead in Israel, so we'd say to the church, when leaders lead in the church, when the body of Christ willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. That would really be how you'd apply that to the church age right now. When God's people, because it's people of covenant, when God's people... When the leaders lead and are led, then they can inspire the people to willingly offer themselves in service to the Lord, whatever that looks like. It might be something very simple that's not too arduous or difficult to accomplish. It might be something that's big, big steps of faith. The Lord knows. But but the key to healthy spiritual growth for individuals, for a congregation, for the body of Christ as a whole is going to be when leaders are led in the church, and the people in the church offer themselves willingly to the things of the kingdom. And that's the, the foundation of this song, and that's how she begins. And then she gave out the holding about the kings and then bringing up Mount Sinai. And then I mentioned this last week with Shamgar, that in the days of Shamgar, this Jael, who they finally defeated under Deborah, so this guy caused problems during the, the time that Shamgar was the judge, but Shamgar didn't, he struck down 600 Philistines, but he didn't take out Jair. It was Deborah and Barak who brought down Jair. The highways were deserted. People were living in fear. It was so bad before Deborah came to power that the the populace was disarmed. You notice that? There was no defense. There was no shield, no spear. The people were completely disarmed. There was no weapons in Israel. They had no, there was no citizen army. They had no, they definitely had no second amendment. They had no restraint by which to protect themselves from oppressive governments like Jair and the Canaanite government that he was. They were disarmed. 
But anyway, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So really, some entrust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God, the psalmist said, David said in the psalm, I believe it's 27. So some entrust in chariots, we'll trust in the name of our God. So even though they're disarmed, the real issue wasn't that they didn't have swords and shields. The real issue was that their hearts weren't with the Lord and that they were worshiping other gods. Once God raised up Deborah and the tide turned and the judgments came, the words of prophecy, it began to turn. And it was not for her to lead the people into battle. It was for Barak. She recognized that, and she was there with him, and it went just the way it was meant to go. It says also, too, my heart, verse 9, is with the rulers who offer themselves willingly with the people. So, of course, spiritual leadership, servant leadership, always comes from the front. It's never about being a boss. It's about being a leader. Leaders lead by example, and leaders lead in the front. And that's how we're to lead. So when people make themselves the center of the orbit and everyone's working for them, that's not really the way God works at all. Like the servant leader leads by example. So the leaders offer themselves, the rulers, to the Lord willingly with the people. So spiritual leaders should always be Brave and in the front, leading. And truly, I'm not just talking about pastors or pastors' wives. I'm just talking about just leaders, Christian leaders. We need to be brave. We need to have courage. And we need to inspire. It's not about telling people what to do. It's about showing them what to do and getting it done and leading by example. Verse 10, the song goes on. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, rulers, who sit in judges' attire, who walk along the road far from the noise of the archers among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinom. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those who... From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your people. From Micah, rulers came down. From Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there, were great, there was great resolve of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfold to hear the piping for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is the people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death, Naphtali on the heights of the battlefield. So here, she's first of all saying, go declare in all the villages what God did. It's the outlet of information. Go tell every village what God did for his people. Make sure everybody knows. I'm about to finish up this book on the Revolutionary War. I've been reading it for about two months. It's called Almost a Miracle. About 500 pages. It's really good. And uh, when Cornwall was defeated at Yorktown with the siege with Washington and the French, when it really, that was the defining moment, the Revolutionary War just dragged on, you know, to 81, 82, just arduous, all these battles for the previous couple of years in the South, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, just such a brutal war. And, you know, Tories, like, so the collaborators with the British, and then the people that were the Continental Army and these militias, it was just, it's amazing, the birth of our country, absolutely amazing. But... When the British and their 8,000 troops surrendered at Yorktown, that really was the end of the war. That was the defining moment. 
And of course, uh, Cornwall didn't come out. That's the famous thing. He sent his other guy out, and, and Washington refused to accept his sort of surrender because it wasn't equal. So Washington had his guy one down, received the sword from the other guy, one guy down. And so when the news went out for the Battle of Yorktown and the victory at Yorktown, it went out like one day the riders go out, so now it gets to Sharksville, Virginia, it gets to Richmond, Washington, the, Cornwall, they surrendered. The British surrendered, and everyone knew this was the defining. This was it. The war was going to end one way or the other. The French came in. Lafayette was already there. They came in. It was going to go. It was going to, the war was going to be over in 82, one way or the other. It might be the South belonged to the British. The North belonged to the United States, of like seven states. It was going to go all these different ways, and everyone was trying to secure what they could because they thought Europe was going to mitigate a peace, and it was going to go that way. But as it was all moving toward the late summer of 81, there was going to be a clear winner and a clear loser. And Washington, the Continentals, and the fresh French troops, they came down from New York. The guys came from the south. Cornwall was surrounded. And that's, that's the way it went down. But as that victory happened, they didn't have the internet. They didn't really have the, they had the newspapers. But within a day, it got to Richmond and these places. Now, they knew the siege was going on, and no one could siege like the French could. And they knew the siege was happening, but then when it fell, then the riders went out and they got to Philadelphia. When they got to the Continental Congress, I mean, Philadelphia was like celebrating beyond measure because those troops had all, all walked through there about seven, eight weeks prior. Washington's troops, the Continentals, the militia, and the French had all marched through Philadelphia and their French whites and Continentals with their bare feet, and they were going down. This war was going to be settled. And that good news went out, and by the time it got across the, the pond, across the Atlantic, it took like six weeks. By the time London found out in the Upper House of Commons, the Lower House of Commons, they knew the war was over. That's the way news went back then. When there's a great victory, it took a few days, and you, you knew something was going on, all these armies, and this is the war, this is the battle, this is going to just decide the war. A nation was born. This nation was birthed. And the news went out like this. Come you who ride on your white horses. Come you in judges attire as you go out and you tell the news. It's good news. It's good news for all those burnt out villages and those towns that didn't even exist anymore because the British had looted and plundered everything as they had gone through the south. As it got to Savannah, as it got to Charleston, it was good news. Can you imagine how good the news was? We're free. It's a free nation. What are we going to do? We won. They won. They won the war. The world would never be the same, and it's never been the same. That's what happened here. This was a great victory, and you needed to go out. Deborah said, go out and tell. She's singing a song. Go out and tell everybody what God has done for us. Get on your horse and ride on your white horse and tell them in the farthest north kingdom. Tell them in the southern tribe with Judah. Tell them all the way to the borders of Egypt. You tell them what God did for Israel with this victory over Sisera. You tell everybody, this is great news. This is a military victory that you're not seeing in a theater through a newsreel like my dad growing up in the theaters in the 30s and the 40s or on the news with Walter Cronkite or the internet now, this is how they found out. This is glorious news. This is good news, and she's singing about it. You go out on those horses, and you tell them we got great news. God is on the throne. God is victorious, and God wins, and he defeats his enemies. But notice what her song goes on to say, but let me tell you how this works out. Zebul and Naphtali, they were there. The tribe of Reuben, they were all in. These are the heroes. The militiamen came up from North Carolina. They were there at the siege. They risked their lives. 
No guts, no glory. These guys risked it all. They were there when they stood down 900 chariots coming at them. They were the ones charging right at it. They were there, and they're commended for their courage and what they did and the victory they brought. But those tribes that stayed home, stayed on the inlet and kept fishing, you want to stick around on your jetty and just keep fishing? There's war, and you're like, I don't want to get involved. I, you know, I just want to get along with everybody. No, you have to choose sides. To not decide is to decide. To not act is to act. And this was what we talked about Saturday night. To contend. And here in this beautiful song of this woman of God, she commends those who had great resolve of heart, great searching of heart, who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. I mean, that's, a, that's just a prophetess saying this about your life. Like, what could be more beautiful than the decree going out on the white horses, the judges going, hey, here's the song of Deborah. Here's how it plays out. Hey, Reuben was all in. He's really the tribe of Reuben. Yeah, you get the glory and you get the credit because you actually did something. Not everyone gets a, a game ball for doing nothing. You don't get the, you don't get in the prophetess song because you stayed home and kept fishing on your jetty in the north. You don't get that. And by the way, I think it's the same in heaven. Because to her who has, more will be given. But to him that doesn't even have, even what they have will be taken from them. We've heard it about us baby boomers heard our whole life. No guts, no glory. I mean, I, that's, man, that's like high school in the 70s. No guts, no glory. I mean, that's surfing in the 70s in the North Shore. Yeah, bro, no guts, no glory. You know, like, go for it. Like, I mean, this, it's like... If you don't get after it, you don't get anything. Only in dumbed-down societies is there encouragement for nothing. But in societies that advance the kingdom and advance good things for humanity, there's risk and reward. There's always risk. And these men jeopardize their lives to the point of death. So for the women that jeopardized her life to the point of death, like Corrie ten Boom, hiding Jews in her house, cost her sister her life. Corrie ten Boom's sister died in a concentration camp. There's just times you got to do the right thing, and you're risking your life, and good for you. It's much better to risk your life for something that really matters than to live a life that you risk nothing, because that's not really living. And this song is awesome, and it commends people who did stuff. And it holds accountable people who didn't. So Gilead stayed away beyond the Jordan. Well, why did Dan remain on ships? I don't know, Dan. Why did you remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore. Well, don't we all like to just continue at the seashore and have a day at the beach? Isn't it easier to look for sand dollars and seashells than go to war? Stayed at his inlet. What a contrast. People had great resolve, great searching of heart, Great resolve, fire, you know, fire in the belly, and searching of heart. Like, this is the hardest decision, but I'm all in. I'm going, honey, I'm going. I'm joining the troops from Zebulun. When you go and pack my bags right now, I'm going. I'm all in. Honey, you sure there's 900 chariots? Jabin's ruled over us for 20 years for a reason. No, I'm sure. Pack the food. I'm going right now. This is human history. This is human history, and this is spiritual history. 
people who are willing to be all in and risk their lives to be all in. And I don't know what it means on October 19, 2021, but I suppose if that day comes to us, we'll certainly know what it means. Verse 19, we close it out now. The kings came and fought. The kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Caesarea. Man, Deborah's like, hey, you know you're in trouble when you're fighting against the stars. Because God rules the universe. He's giving credit to the stars fighting against them. The torrent of Kishon, verse 21, swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Mezrah, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to help. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. She, he asked for water. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. He laid still. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And the mother of Sisera looked out through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answer, Yes, she answered herself, Are they not divide, finding and dividing the spoil? To every man a girl or two, implying a sex slave, by the way. To every man a girl or two, for Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plenty of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter? Thus let your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest 40 years. Wow. You talk about a smackdown. And you know a smackdown is like when you just, the mic drops, it's like, boom. You just say, boom. Right? Look at this. Jael is commended, this blessed woman of faith who risked her life and this mighty general that terrified everyone with his 900 chariots, the big bad bully who plunders everybody, takes the women to be sex slaves in his sex trafficking schemes. Even his mom knows it and actually brags about it. You know, this is the son she raised. She raised him just right. That's my son. That's my boy. Go get him and whip those little Israelites, teach them a lesson, take their little girls. There's people that think like that, and we know them. What a different song. What a different perspective. Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, is a hero. She's a hero for what she did. And then the mocking of the mother of Sisera looking out to the window. Oh, what's going on? Oh, they're plundering. No, they're not. Your son that you enabled in all of his evil, the oppressor of God's people, a woman, a descendant of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, struck him down and drove a peg right through his temple. That was his end. And he's not plundering anyone's garments or their nice sneakers or their gold or their Bitcoin or anything else. He's dead. And in the end, it doesn't always happen like that in time, but you can be sure that's exactly how it'll be in eternity. So we close with this thought. Her final, her final key of the song 
You know, like that song, I can sing your love forever. The song goes on forever, right? I can sing your love forever. I can sing your love forever. It is the forever song. It's perfect for altar calls because until you're done, you can just keep playing the song. I know from experience. Well, this song goes, thus let your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. That's how you end a song. That's the song that transcends time and goes to all eternity. That's a song of victory from a godly woman singing the song of victory and singing about the victory and sharing the victory to the glory of God. So praise the Lord. And what did she bring the land after 20 years of oppression? She brought the land 40 years of rest. That's pretty awesome. What a great legacy, right? Like you, you inspire everybody, and then for 40 years, it's a, it's a good life, a whole generation. This matriarch of Israel, this mother of Israel, brought blessings to, for the timeline of an entire generation. What a wonderful story. Very inspiring. I can't wait to teach some of this topically as well.